This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hi, I'm Ash Bennington. Welcome to Building Blocks, a podcast about people's journey into the Bitcoin, blockchain, and digital asset space. Join me as we seek to get to the bottom of what's really happening. Alex, welcome to Building Blocks. Hey, Ash, good to see you. It's great to have you back. You know, you and I have had many conversations over the years. Uh, very excited to have you on this show to learn more about your journey uh, into the space. You actually have a fantastically interesting life story. Uh, tell us a little bit about your life before crypto. Yeah, no, <laughs> you know, I I, uh, I do feel like one of the luckiest people uh, in the world. I, I, I was born in the Ukraine uh, in the 60s. Uh, it was part of the USSR, you know, the Russian uh, evil empire. And uh, in a little hut with an outhouse, you know, that's uh, that was me growing up in the Ukraine, you know. Uh, so definitely uh, um, very tough rules, very tough uh, environment, you know. And, and my, my dad was a refusenik. He was uh, fighting the local regime to to basically was he wanted to immigrate to Israel. He thought all the all Jews should live in Israel and. He lost his job, and uh, he, he was basically listening to the Voice of America in the basement illegally. That was illegal back then. Uh, and uh, so, you know, luckily again, uh, the United States uh, came through with uh, Armand Hammer and Richard Nixon, uh, uh, basically exchanging Jews for wheat because Russia was didn't have anything to eat. And I ended up uh, with my family in Israel. I grew up there for 16 years and went to the military. And then uh, I felt that uh, I didn't know that Israel was going to turn into the uh, startup nation. So I came to the United States. You know, I, I ended up in New York and spent um, the last 35 years in New York. Uh, did eight startups as a founder. Uh, so I live in the city. Uh, uh, I have uh, six kids, an amazing wife. And, and, uh, and, you know, so definitely I should be hospitalized for uh, doing eight startup as a founder. You know, that's a lot of pain. <laughs> eight startups and six kids. Uh, you've been a busy man. Tell us a little bit about uh, the the story of the startups, that trajectory, because it's a fascinating sort of story to hear uh, about the uh, sort of the, just the trajectory of how you wound up where you are today. Yeah, so so the reason I'm saying I'm I'm lucky it's not just be because I made money or I had uh, all these unicorns and things like that. I I'm actually dyslexic and I didn't do well at school. You know, like my teachers would constantly tell my parents, uh, you know, he really has a lot of potential, but we just can't get it out of him. You know, and and uh, so I would. Uh, you know, I was thrown out of uh, my my high school in the last year because basically I just didn't do anything they told me to do, and uh, and I didn't do much better in the military. You know, I uh, bumped between different uh, uh, you know units, elite units, but still bumped between them because people just didn't know how to get the talent out of me. Right? I tested 
exceptionally well on tests, but I just couldn't put it all together. And then I realized that really what I was good at, and I I was lucky to realize that early, uh, what I was good at is really kind of projecting myself into the future, being able to imagine a whole new world or a different world much better than most people. Like I didn't even know that other people couldn't do that. (laughs) So it didn't matter if it was uh, technology or it was uh, uh, other fields, I I could basically imagine better than others. And and most of my startups are just about taking what we take for granted and just projecting, imagining a a different future. And it's not like all of them were successful. Sometimes you imagine an amazing future, you go there, and the rest of the people don't show up. They decide to go somewhere else. So just because you believe in the future, in a certain future, doesn't mean the rest of the world agrees with you. Alex, that's just absolutely fascinating. And you know, in many ways, your life story is very similar to mine. I had a terrible time in school, hated every minute of it. It's so interesting that very often people who are involved in creating the future, particularly with entrepreneurships, uh, entrepreneurship, do have that background of feeling like they're stifled in the existing system. Yeah, and, and look, it's it's not a coincidence that most of the most successful people. Uh, you know, the Forbes 400 or whatever, they're all college dropouts. I mean, uh, Larry Ellison and, and uh, Bill Gates and, and uh, Steve Jobs. And just name name a successful guy and I'll show you that he's a college dropout, right? Uh, what's his name? Uh, Zook from uh, f- uh, Facebook, right? He's a, he's a dropout and so on. So, so it, it's part of it is this uh, lack of... Uh, willingness to accept the status quo, right. the lack of willingness to just follow the rules, right? Just by, because somebody told you these are the rules, I'm not, I'm not going to, I'm going to uh, solve it my way. Or I'm going to do it my way. And obviously that doesn't work well at school. It doesn't work well in the military, right? but it does work. It does work very well in entrepreneurships and in, in uh, creative uh, yeah. fields. By the way, I'd like to just say, Alex, for the record, I did not get kicked out of high school. I was simply asked to leave. Very politely <laughs> asked. Maybe this isn't the right school for you. Yeah, I was in 11th grade, and, and uh, <laughs> the school said to my dad, uh, uh, we will let him graduate, but not in our school. <laughs> <laughs> you and I have had very similar uh, academic experiences. You know, talking a little bit as we as we shift the conversation into crypto, it's really interesting that you had this background in telecom, uh, which I think in many ways sort of set the intellectual stage for the way that you think uh, about digital assets. Tell us a little bit uh, about your unicorn in the telecom space. Yeah, and and it's you know I, I joke uh, that uh, I've seen the movie before when it comes to crypto, and because of that, it's easier for me. Most people are like, uh, how how can you come up with so many good ideas? I'm like, when you watch the movie, you know you can whisper to the person next to you what the what is about to happen, and if you know what's about to happen, you can do better. So so it, when I did the voice of IP right with Arbinet uh, back in the '90s. Uh, I, it wasn't like I knew what the next step was. I, I made a lot of mistakes. I did a lot of, I, I ended up in a lot of dead ends where I have to reverse and take a different direction, right? So now I'm kind of feel like I'm ripping the rewards of all the lessons that I've learned fighting the phone companies right. when I'm now fighting the banks, right? So, and, and back then, if you remember the, the 90s, um, 
you know, I was an immigrant in New York. You know, I was, I was, I didn't have a lot of money, and AT and T charged me three dollars a minute to call Israel to call my parents. Right. I, I remember, I remember calling my grandmother, uh, and she was like, "This cost you a lot of money," and she hung up on me immediately. <laughs> <laughs> I just called it to say hello, you know. <laughs> so, so that was the experience that both sides of the of the of the you know of the ocean had to go through when you wanted to talk to your loved ones and. And, you know, I, I kept thinking about this idea that there must be a different way of doing it, that a way that bypasses the monopolies, right? The, the monopolistic phone companies who kind of dictated what the rates were because they owned the cables, the transatlantic or trans-Pacific cables, and they just decided, okay, it's going to be $3 a minute, you know? So, so when the internet was born, I said, wait a second, I think I can take voice. Instead of putting it on TDM or time division multiplexing, yep. I can put it on TCP/IP, and and I wasn't the only one thinking about it. You know, everybody says there's a lot of people who say, Alex, you didn't invent voice over IP. <laughs> uh, other people did that also, and I'm like, no, they did voice over Ethernet and voice over frame relay and voice over ISDN and every other protocol besides TCP/IP because in '92 and '93. Uh, the TCP/IP or UDP networks uh, were not capable of even carrying one voice conversation. Right? It was so slow, and it ran on top of the phone network. Your TCP/IP was really running in the dial-up modem across your phone network. So, so it sounded completely dumb to take a phone call, move it to IP, then put it on the phone network, which carries the voice call anyway, and uh, 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 terminated, right? But I imagine a different future, going back to the discussion before, I imagine a future in which the phone network will become the main, the internet will become yes. the main network and the phone network is just becoming an application on the uh, on the on the internet, right? On the TCP IP network. And that's what, what I'm saying now. And I, when I say that the entire internet is going to become an application on the blockchain, people think that I'm a lunatic. They say, wait a second, what are you talking about? The entire blockchain is an application on the internet. How can it be that it's going to reverse? And I'm saying the largest network always wins. And I, I understood, I realized that it's not going to be Ethernet and it's not going to be ATM or Frame Relay or all the protocols that were dominant in the early 90s. Right. It's going to be CPIP. And today I'm, I'm already, I'm telling people, look, the largest, most sophisticated supercomputer in the world is the Bitcoin network. It has more processing power than the internet already, already. So, so what do you think is going to happen? Where is everything going to migrate? It's like a black hole. It's just going to suck everything with it. So, yeah. So again, it's easy for me because I've done this. Uh, you know, after you practice eight times, uh, practice make perfect. <laughs> and uh, and again, I'm just a lucky uh, guy. And and with with Celsius, I. It was very important for me to give back, you know, like uh, I've looked at all these rich people who do some charity donations, they pepper a little bit of money here and there, they get their names in the paper. And I said, none of that changes society to the better. None of that transforms all of us to do good and then do well, right? So my, my, my challenge with Celsius was not just, okay, let's uh, help a bunch of people or let's create a very, another unicorn uh, but uh, rather, can I bring the whole village with me? Can I bring hundreds of millions of people with me to financial freedom? 
and basically automate, like make it so easy for them that they don't have to do anything. You know, I joke, you know, Axie Infinity, which is a, a, a pay, get pay, pay to play, right? Yeah. So I, I invented uh, 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 pay to sleep. You know, my customers sleep and they wake up and there's money in their account, you know, more money in their account. So, so, so those are the things that if you, if you really uh, automate a lot of these functions and you, and you transform the banking world from being based on uh, the banks being the choke points, the toll collector in the middle that gets to charge all the little guys overdraft fees and inactivity fees and ATM fees and deliver it to the rich people. Can we do the opposite? Can we deliver to the poor people fees that we charge to the institutions, right? And it sounds impossible, but we've done it, right? And we paid over a billion dollars to to the community. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Over $1 billion you guys have paid out in payments uh, on the Celsius network. And charge the institutions to... The institutions paid us a billion dollars and we delivered it to 1.7 million retail people who gave us tiny little amounts of Bitcoin and Ethereum and so on. So, so again, this is, this is uh, just like with Voice over IP, we're talking right now, we're using Voice over IP right now yes. and we're doing it for free. No one is charging us anything for it. And this used to be the main source of income for AT&T, for KDD, for British Telecom, for right. Deutsche Telekom. And, and all of those revenues, 100% of those revenues disappear, right? Yeah. And, and now billions of people are talking to each other and are much more productive and much more efficient because those monopolies were eliminated. Right. Same thing with banks. You know, banks consume 3% of all global GDP by just being sitting in the middle as toll collectors. Can we eliminate that? Can we take all that GDP and repurpose it for growth and for prosperity for everybody instead of just few shareholders benefiting from being collecting all these fees from these customers. Yeah, you know, Alex, this is just fascinating. By the way, for people who are listening to this, if you may be in your 20s uh, or in your teens, it's hard to believe just how expensive phone calls were recently. I'm talking about in the 1980s, uh, not three, you know, not 100 years ago. In the 1980s, phone calls were exorbitantly expensive. Uh, my father had a brother who lived in California, and I remember the, the things that they used to do. Just ring twice when you get home so I know that you're okay. Do a person-to-person call from yourself to me. I'll know that it's you. I won't accept the charges. I won't get charged the six bucks for the first minute, uh, but I'll know it's you, and I'll know everything's okay when people were flying across the country. I mean, it was just exorbitantly expensive. And AT&T, particularly prior to the divestiture, was almost the, the Google of its day. Uh, and I think it's, it's, it's so fascinating because that seems like ancient history if you're, in your, if you're in your 20s and you're hearing this story. 
But the world has just absolutely changed and been connected uh, at a level that we now just take for granted. It's free. We can jump on Zoom and have a conversation uh, between the U.S. and Tel Aviv or between the U.S. and Taipei, for that matter, uh, and do it for zero cost with much better quality. And guess what? We get to see each other as well when we have this conversation. So it's it's yep. fascinating to see how things that feel so deeply entrenched, the status quo feels like it will go on forever. After all, when you know we were uh, young guys in our 20s, uh, the telephone system had been the same telephone system for 40 years. And now, you know, obviously a totally different world. But at 90, to your point, 1986, AT&T was the most profitable company in the world. And it's all came from charging people crazy, absorb, you know, with 90% margins, right? It's not like their cost was $2 and they charged $3. Their right. cost was like 10 cents and they charge you $3, you know? Yeah. It's the nature of monopolies, right? Yes. So Alex, talk a little bit. I know this show is a little bit uh, more high level than some of the conversations that you and I have done. I mentioned at the top of the show, we've done many conversations where we've talked in detail uh, about the functional mechanics of how Celsius works. Uh, but just as a high level primer, when people say, okay, I don't really understand this. How do you guys generate interest? What's the 50,000 foot explanation uh, for people who don't have finance backgrounds? Yeah, so so when you hear CFI or DeFi, uh, it sounds like uh, a different universe with different uh, uh, you know elements, right? It's like uh, like just a completely different uh, uh, domain. But really, <clears throat> all of these financial services that the blockchain enables are very similar to the primitives that we have in the banking world, right? And and just like banks know how to take your little deposits and aggregate them from millions of customers and then take a lot of money and lend it to institutions or corporations or even give you a mortgage, right? Uh, the same way uh, DeFi and CeFi does exactly the same thing. So the difference, the main difference is that banks, again, collect all the profits and deliver them to the shareholders. Why? Because that's their purpose. The, the existence of a bank is to basically provide profits to its shareholders. And in DeFi and CeFi, most of the uh, DAOs or most of the decentralized solutions are focused on effectively delivering most of the value to the person who provided the capital. So if you make the deposit into a, a DAO or a, an AMM, like a, a basically a lending platform, you get to keep most of the fees that the platform generates, right? So, so if you provide the liquidity, you also get the fees. And, and, or you can borrow. If you borrow, you pay the fees, but you're paying those fees to the people who provided the, uh, uh, the uh, assets in the first place, the stable coin or the Bitcoin, the Ethereum. When you give the bank your deposit, uh, your bank t turns around, lends it to your neighbor on their credit card, right? You pay 24% for borrowing money on your credit card. Your neighbor still collects only 0.1%. It's not like the bank says, look, I couldn't uh, deploy the money, so I'm only going to pay you 0.1%. But when I deploy the money and I charge my customers 24%, I'll give you 20 out of the 24%. And that's exactly what DeFi or CeFi does. The DeFi or CeFi says, look, if we can deploy it, if anyone's using the platform, you'll get the vast majority of the fees and uh, in a decentralized system, there's no one in the middle, right? It's just you and the, and the borrower, you the lender, they're the borrower, we'll just make sure that everybody pays everybody and everything is run properly. So banks are 
centralized and and defensify is decentralized it's relying on decentralization uh, as a way to continue and maintain uh, order using smart contracts and blockchains yeah so alex uh, as a, an entrepreneur you know that these journeys are not straight lines tell us a little bit about what's happening right now in the united states uh in with your business and with the general regulatory infrastructure uh that we see today so Celsius invented this idea of, of yield on the blockchain. No one even thought about it, right? And for the first three years, uh, everybody thought that uh, first, okay, this company is not going to make it. They're they're overpromising. Maybe they raise some money so they can fund some of this yield through their uh, fundraising. But sooner or later, they're just going to have to either charge higher fees or they're going to have to uh, change their business model. No, no one believed us that we actually charged institutions uh, fees and then gave it to the retail guy and we could scale the business, you know? And, and they told me, I remember I, I had 10 million in, in assets from customers and they said to me, look, it might work with 10 million, but it's not gonna work with a hundred million, you know? So a few, few months later, we were at a hundred million. They said, <laughs> well, great. So you made it to a hundred million, but you can't get, make it to a billion, you know? And now we manage over 20 billion, right? And everybody's scratching their head and saying, wow, you know, it's actually a pretty good business model. Let's, Let's also open a Chinese restaurant and offer, uh, you know, chicken and broccoli. It seems to be like everybody wants chicken and broccoli. <laughs> so the regulators said, wait, 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 everybody, all of you guys opening these stores, you all need health inspection. We want to make sure that the food you're serving and, and the menus you have and the prices you're charging and everything is kosher and you get this health inspection, you can keep walking, right? So regulators are not here to shut down the stores. They're not here to block people from doing the stuff. They just want to make sure that you're actually doing what you're doing and that customers are not going to get hurt and that basically there's not going to be losses. So, so you have state and federal regulators, and each one of them has different uh, things that they're watching over. For example, are you offering a security or is it not a security? Are you... Uh, keeping uh, uh, the assets in custody in a safe way or not in a safe way? Are you lending out in a, in a risky to risky borrowers or not risky borrowers? So these are all the questions that regulators are asking. And, and I think, again, when, when everybody is going to stays compliant, uh, you're going to make sure that everybody's getting a healthy uh, chicken and broccoli instead of uh, salmonella or whatever else. Uh, 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 making its way into somebody's uh, restaurant and poisoning people. So, so I think regulation is good. KYC AML, like Celsius did KYC and AML since day one. Many of our competitors are just now implementing it because regulators are forcing them to do that. And there are companies offshore that pretend like uh, U.S. regulators or European regulators don't apply to them because they're based on some island or they are hiding from the law or whatever. So really, the consumer has to do some homework and make sure uh, that they know who they're dealing with and make sure that they're working with good actors instead of people offshore who are just trying to do a rug pull or, or uh, you know, and, and our industry does have a lot of uh, incidents of, of, of uh, basically people giving money to an anonymous founder who wrote a protocol and then they're surprised that uh, the money disappeared six months later, you know. Yeah. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So tell us a little bit just to bring us up to speed uh, about the changes that you guys have made to U.S. services in that context. Yeah, so we had to basically separate accredited and unaccredited. We basically uh, uh, provided uh, less services or different set of services to unaccredited uh, investors. This is on the yield product, on how you earn yield. Uh, but uh, retail customers, uh, uh, non-accredited, still can take loans. They, they can swap. They can uh, do use on-ramps to move assets or, or dollars from f- the fiat world into the crypto world. They can deploy on DeFi. So most of the services are still available to everybody. But when it comes to yield, there are some restrictions on, and uh, we had to use different type of custody that the regulators asked us to do. Uh, again, many of our customers are upset about it and they don't feel that this is a fair treatment, that there shouldn't be a separation uh, between accredited and unaccredited. And again, these this go back to laws written in 1933 and 1940, right? So we're right. applying laws almost 100 years ago to something that is uh, brand new. It's, it's The equivalent to this would be if uh, the FCC, which regulates communications, would have said, wait a second, you guys want to use voice of IP, and you want to use video on top of it? No, 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 okay? We're going to decide who is allowed to talk to whom and uh, how and so on. So, look, I understand that this is people's money and their livelihood, and this is like life saving. so the, the bar should be much higher. But we also need to revisit the laws written 100 years ago and see if we need to scrub and refresh some of them in light of the tech and the and the diff- and the innovation that exists in the industry now. Well, you know, in many ways, it's just like the old cliche, right? First, they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you, then you win, right? And I think that that's in very, like, sort of capsule summary form, the ethos of this space, that people believe uh, that this, because there are better technologies, uh, there are better um, ability to do things um, in a way that's transparent, in a way that is peer-to-peer that we've never really seen before. They feel uh, in this space, many uh, folks who are passionate about digital assets, that the victory is inevitable. I'm curious because, you know, you joked at the top of the show, you know, first I fought the telecom companies and now I'm fighting the banks. Do you feel that, you know, particularly on this show where we trace the history and people's mental process over years. Do you see those parallels when you think about this? Yeah, I totally agree with you. And and the reason I know we're going to win is because uh, we see the results of our actions. So uh, I don't know if you saw it on Twitter. I posted it several times. A, a customers, our customers, Celsius customers, keep sending us letters that banks are sending them uh, and bragging about how, okay, look, we no longer charge uh, overdraft fees on weekends. <laughs> we, we only charge on the weekdays because we understand that our branches are closed and we don't want to give people, charge them fees for things that they can't fix. Or uh, people are saying, uh, you know, like 
If you have an infraction on your credit card, we're not going to automatically raise your rate from 24% to 29%. You know, again, the Fed rate used to be zero up until recently. Right. So that just the notion that they charge us. When I came to this country 35 years ago, the rate on the credit card uh, was 20 uh, less. It was 19% actually. And uh, uh, the Fed rates was something like 6 or 7%. So now the Fed rate went to zero, but they're charging us even more. The average rate in the United States, 24.7%. So the reason I know we're going to win is because we're seeing change of behavior with the banks. And it's only because hundreds of billions of dollars are moving over to crypto. And regulators or lawmakers are calling companies like Celsius and they want to know what can we do, how we can represent you better, and so on, so on. And when you think to yourself, wait a second, why would a lawmaker or a governor or mayor call you and it's because they understand they cannot get reelected. If you say bad things about Bitcoin, you have zero chance of getting reelected. 25% of the population owns Bitcoin and they're very, very adamant. They're very, very vocal when it comes to their Bitcoin. They might not be vocal about you wanting to repaint the sidewalks <laughs> but, uh, or, or repave the sidewalks, but they're definitely vocal about their Bitcoin. So I, I know we're winning uh, because of those things. And it's just a question of time until the laws and everything else are changed right. uh, to act in our best interest with the people who should be, uh, you know, the, the focus of all of these, pe all of these uh, lawmakers. It just takes time to change those uh, paradigms, particularly legal uh, and regulatory paradigms, which move much slower than the technologies. You know, it's interesting that when you when you think about this and and you you mentioned at the top of the show this idea that these laws were written in the 1930s and 1940s it just takes time to change this legacy architecture yeah it, it does and 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 uh, eventually we win eventually uh, these things do normalize and and we've seen it with the internet we've seen it with the industrial revolution right so so it it, it 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 these waves come and and there's no bigger wave than crypto. Like so, a lot of people think that crypto is like a sideshow, and that the real fight is between, for example, the digital dollar and the Chinese yuan. But you know, this this is it reminds me of the of the '90s because in the early '90s uh, we had several versions of the internet. Remember, we had the government version. We had Microsoft and IBM and other companies telling us, no, it's all about intranet. The public internet is not safe and you may uh, lose a finger if you use it, you know? <laughs> and, and and then we had the, you know, again, the government, the corporate, and, and we had the private, the, the public internet, right? So so the public internet is what we all, what won over, right? It's a global phenomena. And the same thing with money. What's missing is the money of the internet, right? The, the public version, the global version of money and that's going to eat away at all other asset classes. And 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 when you when you can tokenize anything, when you can move anything to be available 24/7 365 on a global level to every user around the world, which is not what we have today. Today each currency exists in a certain country bound by artificial borders. Somebody drew on the map, you know, like, like for example the the border between Iraq and Syria or, or Iraq and Iran was drawn by the British yeah. that occupied that uh, before World War II. And it's like, and, and money stops there in the middle of the desert. Money does, certain money doesn't work and you need different money, you know? <laughs> and, and so when you ask yourself, how is that possible? 
obviously you realize that it's all man-made and it's all artificial. So, so I think the opportunity we have here is to transform stuff that was done in the best interest of the state or in the best interest of uh, uh, an empire or some, some continent and transform that to be in the best interest of humanity on a global scale, right? I don't know. And, and, and that's what's amazing about Satoshi. You know, I, I feel every day like I carry the flag for Satoshi. You know, I, I, I got in front of this parade and I just got to carry the flag and I'm the happiest clown in the entire parade. But, but you know, the, the, the thing is that Satoshi put together all of these pieces that existed before and just added one more ingredient, you know, the proof of work. Right. To make everything work, everything we knew in computer science for 70 years suddenly came together and, and he or she solved this uh, double spend problem, which, which I worked on in the, in, the, in the 2000s. I worked on, it, on, on solving it and I couldn't, right? So, it's, it's, so I'm, I'm, I'm super excited to be, and I was a Bitcoin denier in the beginning, not to, you know, not to uh, tell you that I looked at it and I immediately realized the fortunes or the capabilities here, the possibilities uh, but I, I definitely think that it's more efficient and more scalable than any of the traditional kind of uh, uh, government-based uh, fiat uh, currencies. Yeah. You know, Alex, that's the perfect transition uh, to ask you about the final question I have for you, which is tell us a little bit about your view of the future and how you see us getting there. Yeah. So this is my specialty, right? So we're going back full circle to the beginning of the call. And, and uh, again, for me, it's vivid as, as uh, you know, sun in the middle of a sunny day, right? The, the, the future is here. The, the future in which we all have access uh, to these financial tools. We all can control our for futures and our fortunes. We all can achieve financial freedom and financial independence. All of that is here now. We don't need to wait for it and so on. But we must, we must. Uh, leave the past behind. We must let go of the past and all of these practices that we had with the banking world and fiat currencies and central banks and everything else, because we cannot leap and jump and grab the future unless we let go of the past. And that's really where we're stuck. Right now, we are holding on to the future. We're seeing the amazing capabilities there, but almost no one is willing to let go of the past, right? So, so in this future that I'm talking about, everybody has access to all financial services on an equal basis. Obviously, we know today that, for example, it's super easy to get credit uh, in the United States, but it's very hard to get credit in Japan or in, or in most of the world, right? You can't just go and apply for a credit card and get $10,000 credit limit. Uh, that is a, uh, an unheard of uh, thing in in almost every one of the two hundred uh, uh, countries around the planet, right? So, so uh, simple things like being able to take a loan, being able to open an account, right? More than half of the population on the planet does not have a bank account, right? Stuff that we take for granted. Right. Americans, on average, have I think four credit cards in their pocket on average, each one of them with a credit limit. Uh, uh, some money you don't have being issued to you by somebody else because they think you'll pay them back, right? So basic services like banking, like borrowing, like lending, like yield, being able to earn interest, being able to have money 
work for you instead of you working for your money. Have your money work for you while you're sleeping, right? Without you being a PhD in economics and knowing which stock or which uh, bond is going to do well next uh, and so on. So this freedom, this transparency is uh, going to bring the rest of the population from, from in, on this planet from basically uh, not participating in the middle class to be part of the middle class. It's going to democratize, decentralize all of this uh, uh, command and control, centralized toll collectors like banks and financial institutions. And a lot of people are not going to like it. There's going to be a lot of resistance from lawmakers, from pe rich people who don't want this to happen because it ruins their um, monopolies, right, that they created. The, this is how they extract money from the poor, charging these people uh, $60 overdraft fees if you just had a $1 overdraft, right? Uh, so all these things are going to go away. And, and in the future, I think uh, we will find out that we humans have much less stress and we are much more cordial and nice to each other when we don't have the financial stresses of everyday living, right? Most, I think there's something like 2 billion people on the planet who live on less than $10 a day, right? And all of us, the people like me, again, grew up with an outhouse who managed to escape that uh, 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 lack of uh, freedom and lack of uh, economic uh, access to, uh, to the real world economy. We have the responsibility to, to go and help all the people who did not have a chance, who, who could not uh, come out of bondage or, or give themselves or their family an opportunity to participate in this amazing value creation that we're going through. So, so when I'm talking about this, again, it's, it's not about me behind me. There's several billion people who all stand for the same thing. And again, just like I was born in the Ukraine, just like the Ukraine now stands on the border of democracy and tyranny with the war in Russia, all of us have to look at crypto as the border between, uh, again, decentralization between us enabling, empowering uh, all of humanity and centralization, right? The pendulum swung to full centralization. Uh, the gap between the rich and the poor has never been greater. Even in the Roman Empire, there were more uh, people in the middle class on, in, as a percentage point compared to where we are today. So these are the things that I'm fighting for. And, and uh, you know, I'm super happy that I have the opportunity to be on the right side, to do good and then do well. Uh, and again, we all win. The only losers here are the banks. Celsius wins, the customers win, society wins. Decentralization wins. Who loses? The people who are stealing from us, the people who are centralizing us. Alex, you had an extraordinary journey. Uh, thank you for joining us today and for talking and sketching out the journey that we all have ahead of us in this era of decentralization. Alex Mashinsky, thank you again. Well, Ash, you bring it out in me better than anybody else. So you, you always get the exclusives here. <laughs> we love hearing that. Thanks again for joining us, man. I always have fun when we do these. Thank you. Thanks for listening, everyone. All right, that's a wrap on Building Blocks. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, head over to realvision.com forward slash crypto, where the crypto conversation always continues. <laughs>